Hello, this is the For the Love of Film podcast. I'm the host, Scott David Chase. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the films A Simple Favor, Juliet Naked, Kin, and I also revisited the 1990 film Predator 2 in preparation for seeing The Predator, the fourth or sixth film, depending on if you count the Alien vs. Predator films as part of the Predator series. Um, first, I, I, before I start talking about the movies I saw, I'm giving a little music plug, because as, as some of you who have listened before know that I and various co-hosts will occasionally talk about different artists. There's an album that just came out this past Friday. Uh, it's called Palms by the band Thrice. It's their 10th album, and it's phenomenal. I've now listened to it 15 times in a little over 72 hours, and uh, so far, it's the best album I have heard in 2018. Certainly not for everyone. They are a somewhat heavier, although the longer they've gone in their career, the more melodic they've become, but they're a somewhat heavier band, and... um, yeah, I think it's their best album thus far. It's their 10th album, as I said. They're 20 years into their career. But highly recommended Thrice Palms. So check it out if you're into such things. So first, because I just finished it about a half an hour ago, uh, I rewatched Predator. Or, I'm sorry, Predator 2. Um, it, was, uh, it came out in 1990, and... I had only actually seen it once. I saw it probably in 1992 or 93 when I was in high school. I had seen The Predator uh, growing up in a fairly strict, conservative Christian household. Uh, I was not allowed to see R-rated films. Obviously, I was underage uh, until my halfway through my junior year in high school, but uh, a lot of friends... You know, going to sleepovers and just hanging out at friends' houses, I ended up seeing a lot of action films, and a lot of people's parents were lax about R-rated films, particularly if they were just violent films, if it wasn't sexual uh, in nature for the reason for them being rated R. So I did see this. Uh, I know that Predator 2 was not nearly well as well-received as the original Predator it's one of those, uh, it's, it's not that uncommon now, but in 1990, I know it was fairly rare to do a sequel not starring the original star. Arnold Schwarzenegger's character does not reprise his role in this. Uh, there were talks about it at some point, but, um, and he's talked about wanting to return to the role, uh, variously throughout the years, but, uh, Having not seen The Predator, I don't know if he makes a cameo in this, but I haven't heard anything about it. So, But I, I do know that The Predator, the 2018 film, does kind of... I know it ignores the Alien vs. Predator films. And as Predators, which was the third film which came out in 2010, takes place in the future, uh, The Predator follows the events of Predator 2, and I know that um, Jake Busey, Gary Busey's son, plays the son of Peter Key as the character that Gary Busey played in the first film. 
And so I wanted to refresh myself with the events of Predator 2, so I decided to watch it. I couldn't find it on any streaming services. I'm sure someone listening was you know, shaking their fist saying, but it's on this or it's on this. But I, I did a quick look. The only two streaming services that I currently use are Netflix and Amazon Prime, and it wasn't on either of those uh, in September of 2018. So I found it at my local uh, record store on DVD for $5, purchased it. Um, I'm actually bringing a stack of discs back to them today, and that'll be returned to them. So the I remembered as a teenager liking Predator 2, not like, liking it as much as the original Predator, but liking it. Um, I thought it was cool that they'd cast Danny Glover in the lead, who, despite the Lethal Weapon films, uh, generally was not seen as an action star. And to be honest, watching it this time, he's not really an action star in this. There's only... He only has one real fight scene, and because it was made in 1990, I mean, it was released in 1990, so there's a chance it was filmed in 1989 or maybe even 1988. Uh, It was clear that most of that fight was a stunt person. It was shot from behind. You can't see Danny Glover's face, and it's a pretty uh, static fight scene between Danny Glover and Kevin Peter Hall, who who plays the Predator in this film as well as in the first film. It's interesting because the Wikipedia page says he reprises his role as the Predator, but it's not true because this is a different Predator than the first film because the Predator in the first film dies. Sorry, spoiler. And the Predator in this film dies as well. And this was uh, the end of this film. There is the hint, uh, you know, when uh, Danny Glover's character, whose name I can't remember, so I'll just call him Murtaugh. Murtaugh gets into the predator ship and sees his little trophy case with the skulls of different creatures he's killed through you know throughout the galaxy and we see the skull of a xenomorph from the alien franchise which 20th century fox also owns that uh, as well as predators so that was you know they totally had the rights to uh do that crossover and they eventually did that uh fans had been clamoring for it for years after that, and there was comic books and various crossover things before the actual film was made, and those films were fairly disappointing. And I, I, I will say this film was pretty disappointing to, watching it now. Um, it looks very dated, which even though it's newer than the original Predator, the original Predator... of it takes place in the jungle, so it has sort of a timeless look to it, and all of the humans are dressed in military fatigues, so it doesn't doesn't have a time-era stamp on it where all the clothes... in, in, In Predator 2, all the clothes are very much dated in the late 80s, early 90s, even though it... It was released in 1990. It's supposed to take place in the then future of 1997. And they were smart, and they didn't make it incredibly futuristic, but their predictions of uh, Los Angeles being a a war zone between uh, gangs and the police was a little bit off, obviously. 
There's also the the drug cartels, uh, or all the characters who play them are very stereotypical uh, Latino and Jamaican actors, and yeah, it was it, it, all the tropes of an action, you know, a cop movie are in here. The, the, the rogue cop who doesn't like to obey orders, uh, which would have been Mel Gibson's character in Lethal Weapon, but Danny Glover plays him in this. And the police chief that just is getting tired of his shit. And then the, a federal agency coming in and butting heads with the local police, uh, you know, Gary Busey plays the the Fed, who they're secretly their government organization trying to trying to capture the predator, capture it alive. And you know, Bill Paxton is in it playing a a new cop. He's mostly the comic relief. Uh, it's I think they had seen James Cameron's Aliens and were like. They wanted a char- wanted Bill Paxton to play a character similar to uh, Hudson in Aliens, and it's but it's an obnoxious character in this. And Bill Paxton's a great actor, but a lot of his work in the '80s and early '90s was playing just kind of ridiculous loudmouths. And this is another one in that. Um, pretty much the entire film, Danny Glover is covered in sweat. I mean, it's part of the plot of the film is that. You know, it's it's a hundred, it's over a hundred degrees in Los Angeles, and it's. Uh, but he's also running around, avoiding being killed, trying to catch the predator. Uh, another thing that really kind of sets the movie in the time and place it was made was, Morton Downey Jr. plays a. Uh, kind of a sensational, uh, Geraldo Rivera type. TV anchor. If Martin Downey Jr. or Geraldo Rivera don't mean anything to you, that's exactly kind of the point. It's they they were sensational television quote unquote journalists from the 1990s, but uh, are of no real relevance today. Um, and certainly, it, it it dates the film. The effects look a bit dated. But I don't mind that as much in science fiction films as uh, just setting the predator in a, a modern urban environment and seeing seeing the the alien in more well lit settings just does it a disservice. I mean, it's a great design, but it's best when you saw it in little flashes, like in the original. So. Yeah, definitely a far inferior film to the first one. We'll see how much The Predator ties in with this. And if it just seems with this franchise that it's diminishing returns. I really enjoyed the first film, and this one didn't really enjoy. I, I got a fair amount of enjoyment out of Predators, the, the 2010 film, but it's also been, I don't think I've seen it, since 2010, so depending on how much I like The Predator, I might revisit it. But yeah, I would um, I'd give Predator 2 about a 5 out of 10.
So, uh, the next film, the first of the new films that I saw, was A Simple Favor, which just came out this weekend. Uh, stars Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively, and also Henry Golding, who is just coming off of a pretty big success with uh, Crazy Rich Asians, which I still have not seen. I don't really have a desire to see it. We'll see how the next month goes, if it's still playing, and there's a, a downtime in the cinemas in the beginning of October. I might see it just for the podcast, but I don't really have a whole desire to see it. But it's a it's a murder mystery friendship thriller. Uh, Anna Kendrick plays a, a, a spunky single mom who has a has a YouTube blog where she does daily videos with helpful hints, recipes, so on and so forth. She kind of plays just a variation on a character that Anna Kendricks plays a lot. I think she's a likable actress, but uh, she's not been given a lot of roles with range that I, that I'm aware of. Uh, I haven't seen any of the pitch perfect films, uh, zero desire to see those films. They're not made for me. I mean, I'm sure that they're great for what they are and for those people who enjoy those types of films, but I haven't seen those. But uh, So she's kind of typecast, and Blake Lively certainly typecast as a uh, erudite, well-to-do, uh, swearing, uh, drinking during the day, uh, kind of trophy wife. She's, she's married to Henry Golding's character. He's a author who was very successful a decade before, but is having trouble writing now. And, uh, her and Anna Kendricks strike up a, uh, unlikely friendship originally because their, their children go to school together and they become friends. And then about, you know, a little less than halfway through the film, Blake Lively's character, uh, dies and uh, it's not really a spoiler. It gives it away in the in the trailers. So Anna Kendricks then be, becomes a detective trying to track down what exactly happened to her. And it's very similar to Gone Girl, but um, you know David Venture did not direct this. Paul Feig directed this. Who you know Paul Feig had done. Uh, I know he did Bridesmaids, and he's done some other uh, fun, light comedies where this tries to be a serious thriller for the most part. I mean, there's there's comedic elements in it, but it, it mostly tries to be a serious film, and it really... The, the first third of the film is very intriguing, and then pretty much from the point where Blake Lively's character disappears on to the third act, it becomes kind of ridiculous and unbelievable. And I'll just, I don't want to give any of the plot away, but there's so many things in the plot that just stretch your, um, suspension of disbelief to the breaking point. And then the last third of the film just becomes ridiculous. And it's not a, I don't know. Uh, 
it, it took it took me out of the film. I stopped caring about any of the characters in the film by the last third, and they keep changing the perspective on kind of who the protagonist is, who you're supposed to care about, and who you're supposed to despise, which, you know, I've seen plenty of films that do that and do it well. And, but this one, I just, I, I didn't, I basically, I didn't care about any of the characters by the end of the film. Uh, I know that the novel that it's based on does that as well, and that's sort of a plot device, but just because something is done on purpose doesn't mean that it works. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's somewhat entertaining. I think there are other people who don't watch a lot of dark films who would probably find it more entertaining than I did. I just, the ending kept dragging out to, I, once the film had kind of revealed itself what it had done, it didn't wrap itself up quickly enough. I just, uh, and part of it was because I didn't care about any of the characters. I had had enough of spending time with them and I was like, okay, just let, let's wrap this up. I don't care anymore. And it kept going. So, um, yeah, simple favor. Uh, I, from the trailers, I was actually tentatively interested in it. It looked like it could have been good. And it, the trailer made it look like this would be a different role for Anna Kendricks, and it really wasn't. I mean, hats off to whoever edited the trailer because they did a good job of picking my interest and making me want to see this film, whereas if it had been advertised a little more honestly, I probably would have passed. So, uh, yeah, if you're fans of either of the leads, you'll probably enjoy it a little bit more than I did. Uh, I would give a simple favor, uh, a six out of 10. No need for me to ever see it again, but, uh, yeah. So then, uh, the next film that I saw was Julia naked, um, uh, directed by Jesse Peretz and based on a novel by Nick Hornby, Jesse Peretz most well known or got his start in the entertainment business as the bass player for the Boston bass band, the Lemonheads. He had left right before their breakthrough album, It's a Shame About Ray, but he, you know, directed some of their videos and uh, occasionally still contributed songwriting to them. Uh, he, he did a film called Our Idiot Brother a couple years ago with Paul Rudd that was a lot of fun. Uh, not, not a great film, but a fun film. And uh, his first film which came out in the 90s, which was uh, First Love, Last Rites, great starring vehicle with, for uh, Giovanni Ribisi and Natasha Gregson-Wagner. Uh, so he's done, you know, he, he's made, I think, six films. And it is based on a Nick Hornby novel. Uh, Nick Hornby, probably most well-known for writing the books about a boy, High Fidelity, Fever Pitch, a few others, which have all been turned into films. Uh, I really like High Fidelity, and some Nick Hornby purists will uh, lament the fact that it was reset in Chicago with John Cusack starring in it because um, Nick Hornby is a British author, and almost all of his films take place in and around London. Um, the original version of Fever Pitch takes place in England, and they remade it with Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore around the... Red Sox winning the World Series, however long ago that was. I think it was 2005. But, um, 
you know, this movie starred uh, Ethan Hawke. He's playing a singer-songwriter guy named Tucker Crow, who had um, some modest success as a musician in the 90s and then disappeared for 20 years. Uh, they, they do a good job of utilizing old photos and some video of Ethan Hawke from that era uh, as Tucker Crow. And Chris O'Dowd uh, plays a, a musical, a guy who's obsessed with the music of Tucker Crow. He has a website and does a lot of discussion groups about his music and where is he now. Because not only did he stop making music, but he pretty much completely disappeared. And then uh, Rose Byrne plays his long-suffering girlfriend, which I didn't realize until halfway through the movie that they weren't married. Uh, I, I thought that they were married because... I think she said they'd been together 15 years. and, um, But anyway, uh, kind of out of the blue, Chris O'Dowd's character gets, gets a CD in the mail of demo versions of his favorite Tucker Crow album. And he listens to it, but uh, not before Annie, his, his girlfriend, hears it and... Uh, you know, he writes a review online. He, he gets upset with her that she listened to it without him, but he writes a review of it online, and then she posts her own review of it, kind of slamming it, and um, Tucker Crow sees this review and comments on it, and then they start a email relationship, uh, and eventually... Tucker Crow comes to England, not specifically to see her. To there's a whole B story with him and his children, and um, he has many children from, or I should say, several children from various women. And his his oldest daughter is uh, pregnant and about to have a child, and he's about to become a grandfather, and so on and so forth. And Chris O'Dowd, when he discovers that there's a this deep bond between Annie and Tucker Crow becomes upset slash jealous and um, yeah, some mild shenanigans ensue. This is a movie I, I was looking forward to seeing. I mean, a big part of it is I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan. Uh, he's done a lot of interesting work. Uh, you know, he did the film first reformed, which I reviewed earlier this year. Um, he, he was excellent in that, and this seemed like a role that was ripe for him to, you know, kind of give a meaty performance in. It, it, it was basically if his character from Reality Bites had become famous and then uh, what he did for the next 20 years. But sadly, this movie was also a bit of a disappointment. It wasn't terrible, it just... It was never really laugh out loud funny, and the coincidences that brought people together over and over and over again, it, it was just a little bit too unbelievable, and the relationships came a little too easy, and the ones that did have friction to them, you're like, okay, particularly, you know, Annie and uh, her boyfriend's relationship I'm like if she's this miserable why did she stay for 15 years and 
you know, there's there's a child in the film, a, a young child, I believe he's seven or eight, and uh, he's kind of overused for his precociousness in the film. It just kind of it was it was a misfire. I was hoping it was going to be, you know, maybe not along the lines of before sunrise, before sunset. That those uh, there's a trilogy of films that Ethan Hawke and Julie Delvey have done uh, with Richard Linklater that are excellent small drama relationship dramas. But uh, alas, you know Jesse Peretz is not director of the caliber of Richard Linklater. So, you know, I would give Juliet Naked also a six. Uh, and also just for the record, uh, because I had a couple of people when I went, when I posted a picture of my ticket stub online, um, it's not, it, it's not an erotic thriller at all. The, uh, the album, the acclaimed album that uh, Tucker Crow released in the nineties is called Juliet. So the demo version that gets sent in the mail is called Juliet Naked, the the demos. So there is no actual Juliet shown in this film, and she is certainly not naked. There's no nudity in this film. So that's that. And then the last movie that I saw uh, is a film called Kin, which I had seen the preview for several times before. It came out. I'd say I probably saw this preview five or six times. Uh, it's a this movie wildly uneven. Although I, I will say at the beginning of this, I did enjoy this more than I thought I would. Uh, it kind of looked like it was going to be another young adult adventure film, uh, kind of along the lines of the Hunger Games and you know Maze Runner and all of those. Uh, it's it's about a young boy who uh, finds a laser rifle, an alien, you know, futuristic laser rifle in an abandoned building, and then he and his adopted brother, who has had trouble with the law, go on a road trip, you know, traveling around. Um, sort of the circumstances of what happens, you why they go on this trip it's not really revealed in the trailer and to tell you what happens, we'll give away some plot points, but so I don't want to do that. So I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but uh, James Franco in a very scenery chewing performance plays a, I, I don't know if it's ever actually said, but he's, he's a, he's a criminal. I think he's a drug dealer, but I don't know if it's explicitly said, but, um, very similar, I guess, to the role that he plays in Spring Breakers, Harmony Corinne's film. I haven't seen it, but my buddy Bob, who I've had many burgers with after seeing films, said it's a very similar role. But he's pursuing the older brother, uh, who is played by uh, Jack Rayner, um, who I had never seen before. I guess he's had some minor roles. But, uh, you know, this this movie also has has a... A young actor, um, an actor named Miles Truitt, who I believe this is his first film, but um, and he's he's really the lead of the film, and he did an excellent job. Um, and Zoe Kravitz plays a stripper that they encounter along the way, who decides to join them. Um, it's interesting; she works at a strip club where no one is actually naked. Um, 
going back to what I was saying about the tone being very uneven, I mean, it, 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 it's an R-rated film, but there's no blood that I can remember seeing. And, um, you know, there's no nudity. I think there's only one use of profanity, but I, I could be wrong about that. I, I don't recall off the top of my head. But it, it it goes from wanting to be a dark kind of pursuit film to a family adventure film to a sci-fi film. It, there's certainly, there's quite a few little nods to James Cameron in it uh, from a, a Terminator 2 arcade game to the sheriff's office in the climax of the film being labeled the Sulaco County Sheriff's Department, which the Sulaco is the name of the ship that the Colonial Marines are on in Aliens, which James Cameron directed. Um, you know, Dennis Quaid plays the father of the two boys in this, which uh, he has this weird accent that he's using, and it's hard to place, and it's kind of distracting. I mean, I like Dennis Quaid. I think he's a really solid actor, and uh, I'm not sure if that was his choice or the director's choice, but it didn't quite work. But... Um, you know, when the credits were rolling, uh, one of the things I didn't know going into it was the Scottish band Mogwai did the soundtrack for, which I'm, I was very excited about. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of an in, mostly instrumental post-rock band and a band that I enjoy quite a bit. I have almost all, if, if not all of their albums and they've scored quite a few films and, the all the previous films that they've scored have either been documentaries or so, sort of highbrow dramas. So I had, you know, that elevated my expectations for this film, which it didn't really deliver on. And you know, the, again, those are my own expectations. So I have no one to blame but myself. But um, like I said, I did enjoy it. Uh, Carrie Coons, very talented actress. Uh, who who's in Gone Girl, which I compared a simple favorite to, uh, has has a role in this. Which when I saw that she was in the cast, I was excited, and she doesn't show up until the the last third of the film, and really the last twenty five minutes of the film, if that. So um, this film was is set up to potentially start a franchise, although I don't think that that franchise is going to come to fruition because uh, the movie is underperforming at the theater or at the box office. It, it hasn't even made its budget back. And I believe it's in its third week in release and it's been pulled from most of the theaters. So unfortunately I don't think that's going to ha- happen, which is too bad because the last third of the film is where the movie got really interesting. And there is an executive producer of the film who has a, uh, a cameo role at the end um, to kind of set it up. And I won't, I won't spoil it who it is. They were smart that they kept the executive producer credit till the end of the movie. So you were not aware that this actor was going to be in the film. And uh, you know, the last time I really noticed a film do that was when they kept Kevin Spacey's name off of the credits for the film seven. Um, uh, His name appears nowhere on the poster, nowhere on the, in the opening credits, his name just appeared at, at the end of the film. So, um, 
like I said, you know, the tone of Kin, uneven, but I still enjoyed it. And the way it was set up, I was I was looking forward to, and, you know, still there might be a sequel. We don't know, but I'm not holding my breath for it. But it was better than I expected. I, w- I would give Kin a 7 out of 10. There is definitely stuff to like in it. So, uh, yeah. Those are the films that I saw this week. Uh, nothing jumped out at me that I, I really was super excited about, unfortunately. Uh, I don't usually have too many weeks where there's something that I didn't really like, but, uh, you know, it's going to happen from time to time. Uh, I, as always, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you.